Good morning. What a pleasure and a privilege it is to be here today. Welcome for those of you who are here at Fort Erie with us, uh, live and in person. Welcome to those in Buffalo and anybody watching online. Uh, thank you for joining us. Um, it, is, it is going to be a great day. It is going to be phenomenal. <laughs> And before, we, uh, before I get into the message, just want to remind people uh, for the opportunity to give. Uh, we do, of course, have the opportunity uh, to give our tithes, our offerings. Um, we have lockboxes here uh, in the sanctuary at the back. Um, it is a great opportunity to just partner with God. He is the source of all. He is our provider. Everything we have is from Him. And we have the privilege of giving back to support what He has been doing, not just here, but everywhere. Because God is moving everywhere. There's not a single inch of the earth that his presence is not in. And so we have that privilege. Once again, there's lockboxes here. Uh, there are envelopes and pens at the back. So please feel free at the end of the service. You can, you can fill those out, put that in. And if you are, uh, of course, online, we do have the opportunity to give through the website. And there's also a link in the, the description box of the YouTube video as well. And our website, of course, is golightcity.com. So welcome, welcome. Oh, my love, if you wouldn't mind passing me that tomato down there, please. <laughs> and there's a reason for the tomato. I appreciate it. Look at, look at this fine example of a tomato. It's huge, look at that, that's fantastic. I promise Brittany I will not injure this tomato because apparently it is actually gonna be used for a salad later on. But, <laughs> so the tomato in England has a bit of an interesting history. So for about 200 years, there was fear and suspicion relating to this vegetable, this fruit masquerading as a vegetable. In about the 1600s to about the 1800s, this fruit was widely considered to be poisonous in large parts of rural England. Now, as far as historians can trace back the origin to this misunderstanding, it really was a case of misinformation. It was a case of mistaken identity because one of the botanists there mistakenly identified it as a wolf's peach, which is an entirely different plant and absolutely decidedly poisonous. Now, unfortunately, this information was further spread by an unreliable, um, well, they say botanist, but actually he was a barber slash surgeon slash naturalist, and his name was John Gerard. And he wrote a book that was published and widely shared, and in it, the lie that tomatoes should not be eaten, eaten sorry, was further spread. Now, he was considered unreliable, so I have no idea why his publication actually carried as much weight and authority on the nature of the tomato, but who knows. Now, there's an added wrinkle to this interesting slice of history. So wealthy aristocrats, wealthy European aristocrats, uh, had been introduced to tomato as a food source by other cultures. They just had access to more than the rural areas. But the problem was they were using pewter plates, and pewter has a high lead content. The tomato is a very high acidic vegetable, and so the high levels of acid leached lead from the pewter plates, and unfortunately caused deaths due to lead poisoning, and the poor tomato was the one that was blamed. <laughs> so much so that it actually had the nickname, the poison apple. <laughs> now, thankfully, as you know, larger parts of Europe were introduced to the tomato as food source, as more cultures were able to share their recipes and to share their love of this fantastic vegetable. In, in fact, actually, it was the invention of pizza in Italy, in Naples, Italy, in 1880, that helped spread the popularity of the tomato throughout Europe. 
there you go. <laughs> this story shows that there is unfortunate weight to misinformation, that there is unfortunate weight to mistaken identity. But it also shows that the weight of truth will displace the lies. Truth will set you free. Even if that means we now get to enjoy the tomato. Now, it was a casual remark by, a, uh, by an acquaintance of mine, a friend of mine, that started me on a, a thought process with God as I was preparing for this message. It was a casual throwaway remark, and I, I can't remember exactly what led to the remark, but in laughing, he said, <laughs> I would burn, I would set on fire if I walked into a church. This seemingly throwaway casual comment in the middle of a, you know, a casual conversation, it highlighted his misunderstanding, his misinformation, his expectation of walking into a church and receiving judgment. There was a misunderstanding on the nature of God, a misunderstanding of who God is. He was expecting God to be an angry, vengeful being, just waiting to be smitten, or for God to smite my friend as soon as he walked through the church. There's a lot of misinformation about God. There's a lot of misinformation about the church, about who we are. But God is bigger than that misinformation. The weight of truth will displace those lies because our God is a joyful God. I said, you know, there's a lot of information, misinformation about the church. I was thinking of a friend of mine this week, uh, and he actually came to one of the tent services that we had a couple of years ago. Now, he was a little reluctant to accept the invitation, but he came. And at the end of the service, he said he was completely blown away by what the service entailed. He was expecting something a little bit more somber, a little less jubilant. Um, his expectation was that the message was going to be doom and gloom, maybe fire and brimstone. But it wasn't. It was a celebration. Because we, as the church, as the hand and feet of the living God, as his physical representation on this earth, we absolutely need to be an image of joy and absolutely can be that image of joy for a broken world. Philippians 4.4 says this, Always be full of joy in the Lord. I say it again, rejoice. And the fantastic news is that it is indeed possible to rejoice always. It is not an impossible statement or an impossible request. No, it is absolutely possible to be in a state of joy always. Why? Because joy is a spiritual fruit. It is not an emotion. And when I see it as a spiritual fruit, there are two things that we can take from that. One, if it is the fruit of the Spirit then it has to be part of who God is because he cannot give what is not in him. And two, joy is directly correlated to our growth, our transformation as the spirit works in and through us. Joy is not an emotion as we understand, say, happiness. Happiness as an emotion, as all emotions are, is a temporary response to an outward circumstance. Joy is an, is an inward response manifested on the outside. It is an internal reality. It is part of who we are as Christians, part of who we are as children of God. Now, joy doesn't 
always supersede emotions. It is possible to be joyful even though we might be experiencing emotions that seem counter to that joy. Even Jesus wept. Jesus wept as a response to the grief and the pain that he saw in Lazarus' family after Lazarus died. And Jesus was on his way to perform the miracle of miracles. He was on his way to raise Lazarus from the dead. He knew the outcome. He knew that there would be joy and celebration very shortly. But he wept because he is a compassionate and loving God who absolutely empathizes with our emotions. And he knew that mourning would turn to joy. He knew that there would be restoration. The sermon series for November is called LOL, or Laugh Out Loud. <laughs> My aim is for us to be laughing out loud a lot today, hopefully. The title for today's message is Joy's Perspective. From the joy of the king to the joy of the father down to the joy of his children. Why? Why is it important to see God as joyful? What perspective does he have that causes him to live in an eternal state of joy? And what does that mean with our relationship with him and our day-to-day walk? These are some of the things that we'll be looking at today. Let's pray. Father God, ah, you are the beginning of joy for us. Jesus, you are the example of joy for us. Father God, you rejoice over us always. And this morning, as we look at the reason for that joy, as we look at the reason for why we can have joy always, Holy Spirit, I just pray that your presence and your truth will be felt here today. May you bless the words that I speak in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So let's start with joy of the King. So our God, our King of Kings, the sovereign creator of it all, has no equal. When we consider good versus equal, it's important to have a correct perspective. For example, when we look at hot and cold, you know, we assume that cold is the opposite of hot. No, cold is just the absence of heat. What we feel as cold is just the heat leaving our body. And it's the same for light and dark. Darkness is just the absence of light. It is not the opposite. We see because light is reflected off an object and then returns to our eyes. So when we remove that light, it's not as if the darkness overtakes it. No, it just it removes the ability for us to see. God and the devil, good versus evil, they are not two sides of the same coin. There is no balance. There is no yin or yang. God is the only creator. Everything else is created. The enemy, in his pride, the devil, in wanting to be deemed equal to or even greater than God, his creator, in that, rebe- that rebellion, sorry, he was cast away entirely from God. There is nothing of God left in him. There is, he has been removed entirely from the presence of his creator. The enemy once had the highest position in all of heaven in the realm of angels once a being of light now has none of that light left in him and because he has nothing of god in him he schemes he antagonizes he wants to destroy everything that god has created and loves however psalm 37:13 says the lord laughs at him 
for he sees that his day is coming. The Lord laughs at him, for he sees that his day is coming. <laughs> the enemy as a created being is subject to time. He has a beginning and an end. God as a creator always has been and always will be. God is outside of time. He is not subject to it, is not confined, not constrained by it. He knows the end from the beginning, including our enemy's end. Even before the enemy tempted Adam and Eve to eat the fruit, even before he polluted their mind with the lies that God's intentions were not perfect and loving, even before the fall of man and the beginning of enmity between God and his creation, God had the answer and the solution in place. And we know that that answer is Jesus Christ. The death and resurrection of Jesus is that answer. In the Bible, the book of Revelation says that Jesus was crucified. He was sacrificed before the foundation of the world. Because in God's timeless perspective, that sacrifice, the payment required by that rebellion against God had already been decided before the world even needed it. And so there is no plan, no scheme of the enemy that has any eternal merit because the blood of Jesus is the final, immovable, indisputable answer and has always been. Nothing catches God by surprise. There is Never a time where the phrase, oops, didn't see that coming. That has never crossed his mind, ever. There is not the remotest hint of fear or concern, even concern at the plans of the enemy because God is already victorious and has always been. The war is won. It's decided. It is finished. And so God laughs. Peace and joy are eternally his. They are an indisputable characteristic of who he is because he sees through the lens of restoration. And his heart, his heart is always redemption. The punishment for the world's rebellion against God, the necessary judgment for that rebellion, every ounce of wrath, every ounce of anger that was justified was poured out on Jesus on that cross. Jesus was and is the perfect sacrifice. His death was the absolute fulfillment of the requirement of judgment according to God's law. And so God sees through the perspective of the blood of Jesus that was shed. And Jesus, the Son of God, God among us, willingly, willingly was that sacrifice. Through the death and resurrection of Jesus, for all those that have said yes to Jesus, for all of us who have stepped into a covenant relationship with God, God sees us as completely, completely redeemed. Our transgressions utterly forgiven. Hebrews 10, 17 says, their sins and lawless acts, I will remember no more. Remember no more. Through the perspective of the shed blood of Jesus, God is not concerned about our mistakes or our shortcomings. The Bible is full of stories of people making terrible mistakes or at least making... Take Abraham, for example. It's funny, we actually talked about Abraham during our cell groups. Plug for cell groups, they're fantastic. <laughs> Abraham not being able to have children um, as his wife Sarah was barren was promised by God that he would be the father of nations. 
that his descendants would number greater than the grains of sand on the beach, greater than the number of stars in the sky. But when that promise wasn't fulfilled in what Abraham and Sarah considered a timely fashion, they took it into their own hands. And Abraham bore a son, Ishmael, with Sarah's handservant or maidservant, Hagar. Now, God, in all his mercy, blessed Hagar and blessed Ishmael. But Ishmael was not the son of promise that God had intended for Abraham. And God, in his abundant faithfulness, did, of course, follow up with his promise. And Sarah bore a miraculous child named Isaac. And it's through Isaac that, of course, we have the lineage where Jesus was born. And through Jesus' sacrifice and all the people who are restored to the family, Abraham really is indeed a father of nations. God's covenant promise was not dependent on Abraham and Sarah's perfection. No, it was entirely dependent on God's own faithfulness. I mean, there were consequences to Abraham's choice. Abraham had with, uh, with Ishmael the promise that both Ishmael and Isaac and their descendants would be at odds against each other. And that is still the case today. Yes, there are consequences when we take matters into our own hand, but it does not disqualify us from the promise, the covenant promise that God has spoken over us. Because God sees through the perspective of redemption. In the New Testament, in the book of Romans, Abraham is celebrated as a champion of faith, of unwavering belief in God's ability to do what he promised. His faith is credited to him as righteousness, as right standing, because God sees through the lens of redemption. And for us, through that same lens, through the lens of the blood of Christ, there is no longer enmity between God and those that have said yes to Jesus. It is a completely restored relationship between a father and his children. And we're in a place where we can receive his overwhelming love for us. We are in a place where we can experience the joy of the Father. Now, I was once a lost son. Yes, in the spiritual sense, but actually for this story in the very literal geographical sense. So when I was six and we were still living in England, my family and I decided to go spend the day at the beach. I mean, it was uncharacteristically warm and unrainy, and so we decided to spend the day and just enjoy the fact that we actually had sun. So, of course, being a six-year-old, I do not want to interrupt my fun at all during that day, but I feel the call of nature and leave it to the very last minute. I mean, that's what six-year-olds do. So I expressed this very pressing need to, uh, to my parents, and my mum, of course, just said, well, you know, just go to the sea, just, you know, go to the sea, relieve yourself there, you'll be fine. So off I went to go in search of the sea. Now, I say I go in search of the sea because England has very different water levels between high tide and low tide. And this is due to the fact that, you know, England is an island, uh, or at least part of Great Britain, which is an island. It's location next to the mainland Europe. You know, it's positioned on the Earth so that the moon's gravitational pull affects its waters a particular way. But needless to say, when the tide goes out in England, the water recedes a really, really far distance. Now, my parents probably because they were busy with my younger brother, hadn't actually noticed that we were in low tide and that the sea had disappeared. So off I went, wondering to try and find water so that I could do what I needed to do. <laughs> For in my 
six-year-old's mind what felt like an attorney, I kept on walking, and eventually I did find the sea, and you know, I did what I needed to do. And then I turned around to go back to my parents, and I was lost. Everyone was just specks on the beach far away. I had no idea where I was, because you know, six-year-olds don't walk in a straight line. I mean, you know, it's, it's not a skill. Um, but I did make my way back to the beach. I was, I was terrified because I, I didn't recognize where I was. I didn't recognize any of the people there. It was, you know, I was terrified. But thankfully, and thank you God, there was a very kind family who recognized my distress and helped me uh, look for my parents, calling out for them. Now eventually, yes, we did find my parents. Amen. <laughs> and, you know, I was expecting to be scolded. I was expecting, you know, at least a telling off. But no, my parents were overjoyed. They'd lost me for just 15 minutes, but the joy that they had when they saw me again was overwhelming. Yes, of course, I was happy. I was happy I wasn't lost. I was happy to see them, but it was nothing compared to the joy my parents had over me in me being found. And in the parable of the lost son, in the parable of the prodigal son, Jesus shares that Father God has the very same response, very same heart over his children. It's found in Luke chapter 15, and we'll be starting in verse 11. Love the story. To illustrate the point further, Jesus told them the story. A man had two sons. The younger son told his father, I want my share of your estate now before you die. So his father agreed to divide his wealth between his sons. A few days later, this younger son packed all his belongings and moved to a distant land, and there he wasted all his money in wild living. About the time his money ran out, a great famine swept over the land and he began to starve. He persuaded a local farmer to hire him, and the man sent him into the fields to feed the pigs. The young man became so hungry that even the pods he was feeding the pigs looked good to him, but no one gave him anything. And when he finally came to his senses, he said to himself, at home, even the hired servants have food enough to spare, and here I am, dying of hunger. I will go home to my father and say, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you, and I am no longer worthy of being called your son. Please, please take me on as a hired servant. So he returned home to his father, and while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming. Filled with love and compassion, he ran to his son, embraced him, and kissed him. His son said to him, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you, and I am no longer worthy of being called your son. But his father said to the servants, Quick, bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him. Get a ring for his finger and sandals for his feet, and kill the calf we have been fattening. We must celebrate with a feast, for this son of mine was dead and now has returned to life. He was lost but now is found. So the party began. So in this parable, we have the son who leaves his father to live a wild, decadent, hedonistic, self-centered, self-absorbed lifestyle. When his resources runs out, of course, he takes a job that would have been considered beneath him. You can imagine the humility um, that he felt, the, the shame that he felt being found in this place amongst the pigs. The grass had certainly, of course, seemed greener on the other side before he set out on this journey. The promise and allure of freedom to be able to do what I want when I want. The, uh, you know, the, the, the promise of instant gratification. Give me my inheritance now. 
but there amongst those pigs, even to the point of being jealous of what the pigs had, he finds himself in a position where he needs to go back home. And after he drags himself out of the pit of his own doing and returns home, he was rightfully expecting his father to be angry, to be upset, for the son to be admonished, to be ridiculed, turned away. You know, there's the bed you've made. Go and sleep in it. In his humbled state, he was even willing to take on a position that once was what was rightfully his as a son. But what's the father's response? His father runs to him, runs to him, embraces him, kisses him. Filled with love and compassion, the father's response was joy, absolute joy in seeing his return, his son return home. And even when the son is in the middle of his mea culpa, Father, I have sinned against you, I have sinned against heaven, I am not worthy. Notice there's no admonishment from the father. The father's first response is to call out to the servants, bring a robe, bring a ring, bring sandals. The father's first response was reconciliation, putting the son back in his place in the family. Immediate. There is no need for the son to work its way back up into a place of favor. And of course, the robe, ring, and sandals have symbolic meaning. There is weight to those. The robe represented the covering of the family that the father was putting back on his son. It represented the return to right standing with the father and within the family. The ring, a signet ring, a family ring, was given to those who had the authority to make decisions for the family, for the father. The ring gave them authority to govern the realm. And so in giving the ring to his son, he was showing that it wasn't just restoration as a son, but he was also being redeemed to a place of responsibility and authority. And lastly, the sandals. Servants wore no sandals. So in the father calling out and saying, cover my son's feet, he was once again reinforcing the fact that his son was a son, not a servant. Fully restored to his place within the household. And then there's a celebration, a feast. Nothing would have been spared for this feast, for this celebration. Can you imagine the entire household having a huge party celebrating the return of that which was lost. And previously in this chapter, Jesus had shared two other stories to once again highlight just the joy that heaven, that the Father feels when something that is lost is returned. We have the story, the parable of the 99 sheep where one is lost and the shepherd leaves the 99 to go find the one that is lost. And we have the story of the woman with 10 coins who loses one and overturns a house searching high and low to find just the one that is lost. And in both cases, when what is lost is found, there is rejoicing and there is partying. <laughs> As Jesus puts it, I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. And who do we think is rejoicing the loudest in heaven? <laughs> Our Father God, who has seen his child return home. Now, of course, there is always a choice 
there has to be a choice. Absolute, unconditional love requires that there is always a choice to walk away, to turn away, to live apart from God. Otherwise, it's control, and control is not love. The prodigal son was given the freedom to leave his home, do what he pleased, but he also had the choice to return home. And when he did, his father responded with restoration, not judgment. And with the blood of Jesus paying the full cost of punishment we deserve, when we make that choice to say yes to Jesus, yes to that ultimate sacrifice, when we choose to come home, God sees that choice through the lens of the blood of Jesus. And there is full, complete, total restoration to the family of God. We are robed, ringed, and sandaled. We are redeemed as children, as heirs. He sees us as righteous. We have authority in Jesus' name, and we are seated in heavenly places. And there is a party. The Father does rejoice, and the joy doesn't stop. As his children, he rejoices over us continuously. Zephaniah 3.17 says this, and it was an Old Testament promise, you know, a hope of this joyful restoration. Zephaniah 3.17 says, The Lord your God in your midst, the mighty one, will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. And rejoice is translated from a Hebrew word that Strong's defines as to spin around under violent emotion. A dance to end all dances. Rejoice over you literally means dance, skip, leap, and spin around in joy. God dances. The Father dances with shouts of joy over us. And it's from this place of restoration that we have through the blood of Jesus, this complete redemption, that our Father God literally can rejoice and sing over us. There is no hindrance to his love. So how can our response not be one of absolute joy? Because of the blood of Jesus, because the price willingly paid for me, I can now stand boldly as a full child of God. He sees, he sees me as fully redeemed, as if there had never been anything between us. Not my sin, not my rebellion, not my mistakes, not my shortcomings. None of it. So how can our response not be one of unmitigated, uncontrolled joy? My joy is not dependent on my circumstances. It is not dependent on my comfort. It is not dependent on me knowing all the answers. My joy is entirely dependent on God, entirely dependent on Jesus and what he's done for me. His blood is the foundation for my joy, and therefore it is unshakable. His joy is my strength, and it is unshakable. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> Amen. Joy is a weapon. 
It is a line drawn in the sand, defiance in the face of a broken world. Today is the day that the Lord has made, and I will rejoice and be glad in it. <laughs> and since, oh, thank you, God. And since today is every day, every day, I will rejoice and be glad in it. So, in conclusion, and these are definitely tears of joy. <laughs> the Father sees through the perspective of redemption. He isn't moved by the plots and plans of the enemy. He's not moved by your mistakes and shortcomings. Instead, he laughs at them. Why? Because he sees the victory story. He sees the beginning from the end and the end from the beginning. The wonder-working power of the blood of Jesus is the foundation for our joy. And we must see every situation through that lens. Because of the blood, we have unshakable joy. And if some of you out there have not said yes, it's an all-in yes, absolutely. This is an all-in yes to Jesus. This is something that requires everything. But it is so, so worth it. If you find yourself in that position, just say yes today. Say yes today and experience the wonder-working power of the blood of Christ. Let's pray. Jesus, <laughs> thank you. Thank you. No words could ever express just the, the gratefulness that we have for what you are willing to do. I don't think we could even begin to, begin to comprehend the weight that you took upon yourself on that cross. The full weight of wrath that we rightfully deserved you took and because of your death and resurrection death is defeated because of your life we have life we are fully restored you are the first of many we are the many we are children of the most high and father god what a privilege it is to be able to stand here boldly and say that you are my Father. And as you rejoice over me, how can my response not be one of absolute joy? We have everything we need. God, you have given us absolutely everything we could possibly ever need to live this life with you. Holy Spirit, just cement in our hearts today the truth what it means to be a child of God. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Hallelujah. <laughs> Hallelujah. So, so good. Amen. Bless the Lord. We're going to say something about that. So this glorious tomato, maybe perhaps anytime we see a tomato or pizza, for those of us that are vegetable adverse, Whenever we see a tomato, whenever we see part of his creation, let us be reminded that our God is a joyful God and that our response can be to be Amen. joyful always. And that the red of his blood is a reason why we can have that joy. Amen.